So we are picking up where we left off last week, looking at what has happened to the power of God. I had a conversation this week with an individual, called me up, and they were sitting there like, you know, the problem is, is with the idea of what God does today, is he, there's somebody needs to file a missing persons report. And the reason they say that is because look at all the chaos that is in the world. Our country's probably never been more divided politically than it is right now. And if God is good, then why is all of this going on? And why are all these bad things happening? Why is there sickness? Why is there death? Why is there rape? Why is there any of the bad things that go on? And they were trying to parse this together. It's a fair question, right? If God is good, then why do we have this stuff? And why is this happening? Because you would think a good God would not allow that to happen to somebody, right? You ever had somebody in your life that was taken either via murder or something like that, or perhaps a loved one or somebody you were close to, either raped or a child getting cancer or any of those type of things that is going on? Has that ever happened to you? Because it has to me. I've dealt with that kind of stuff before, not personally and myself, but with people that I know and care about. And if God is so good, then why? My wife had a miscarriage before we had Ariana. God, you're so good. Why didn't you save my baby? Why? And we sit there and we try to come up with answers. And we try to build our theology around our experience, right? We do it all the time. God's not good. I worked with a young man many, many years ago um, that, that was a devout Christian, I'll say. He, he grew up Lutheran. Um, and he, his mom got cancer. And she died from it. And that told him that there was no God. What do you do with that? How do you take somebody's experience and say your experience isn't necessarily true? How do we answer the question that if God is all-powerful, which he claims to be, and we claim that he is, where did he go? Well, when we deal with the moral issue, that's an easy answer, right? That if God is loving, he must allow you to choose to love him or reject him. And if God is loving and he's going to allow you to choose to love him or reject him, then he's going to allow you to choose to love or reject his word and the things that he says. That the fact is you could have nothing that is immoral if there was no standard that is God. We can deal with that. But what do we do with the idea of a child getting cancer? There's nothing more egregious than that to have some three or four year old who is just getting life started dying of cancer. Where's God in that? We have to be able to answer that question. And we have the answer. You know, Paul and I were discussing this this morning. I don't know where Paul, where, where's Paul? He's hiding. He's probably back there snacking right now. Okay, so if you've seen fingerprints and the cakes and stuff, you know who did it. But is, is the idea of, of who God is and how, how do we, we justify this and how do we answer these questions of this. And we as a Christian have the biblical worldview, or at least we should, of where these come from is the reason we have sickness is for one reason. Sin. By sin, death entered the world. There was no death prior to sin. Sin brought death and, and the curse that was from that. Everybody stare at him. Look for cookie crumbs on his face. <laughs> Weird. Yeah, I know. <laughs> Innocent. But, but what is sickness? It is slow death. I don't care if it's a cold and I don't care if it's cancer. That's what it is. It is your, something attacking your body. And your body has the ability to regenerate itself and, re and, and deal with that on certain levels and times that it doesn't. So, what, but these are questions that are hard to answer. And that is why this, this individual who called me this week was like, we need to file a missing persons report because God has disappeared. And the reality is he hasn't because God still heals. 
does it all the time, and that's what we've been focused on, is healing. And that's what we're going to turn our attention towards. So let's do this. Let's look at Psalm 77. Starting in verse 10, it says, I said this, this is my anguish. But I will remember the years of the right hand of the Most High. I will remember the works of the Lord. Surely I will remember your wonders of old. I will meditate on all your work and talk of your good deeds. You know, we don't do that anymore. In fact, Janet brought it up this morning. We were sitting down having a little gripe fest, weren't we, this morning? Griping about all the nonsense in all the world. What's that? We were whining. We were whining. We had donuts, so we had something to be thankful for. But And then we started prayer because we always have prayer early Sunday morning. The first thing Janet says, Lord, we repent. We had no business doing this. We got so much to be thankful for. And here we were whining and complaining about something that really doesn't matter. And it had nothing to do with the donuts. You know, see, and that's the thing, is that we don't talk about the goodness of God. Because as we progress forward with this, you're going to hear stories and testimonies of people that were supernaturally healed. You're going to hear stories and testimonies of moves of God that took place in cities and churches and, 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 and states and countries that have revolutionized the things that you don't hear about. You know why? They don't report it on CNN or Fox News. They don't report about these moves of God that are taking place in China right now where millions and millions of people are hearing the gospel through the underground church because it is illegal. You're going to hear about stuff like that, and I'm excited to get there. But we've got to start with this foundation of remembering what God did. David said, I will talk about your deeds. I will remember your wonders of old, the mighty things that you've done. Yeah, life today may not be grand, but, boy, I remember when God intervened here. <coughs> Excuse me. You see, that's what we've got to get to, is the back where we're talking about the goodness of who God is, and we're having these memorials of Him. And we looked at that. We looked at how, how they always set up these stones and these memorials. That way, when they saw them, they would remember, this is where God brought us through. This is where God took care of us. Could you imagine being an Israelite fleeing Egypt with Pharaoh on your tail? You come to the Red Sea. It's like, well, that was fun, and now it's about to be over. And then all of the sudden, the sea splits. And we're going to walk across on dry land. I don't know about you. That'd take a little bit of faith. You ever been ice fishing? That takes some faith, y'all. Because when you're my size, ice breaks. I went to the school while into the preschool classroom, and they said, here, have a seat on one of the chairs, the little, little tiny chairs. Get thee behind me, Satan. I've experienced this. You want to talk about wonders of old? Wonders of old are broken chairs. Okay. When I, I was uh, 16 years old, I went up to Detroit Lakes, Minnesota. I was going to go ice fishing with my pastor. He took me up there. And uh, I've never been ice fishing in my life. Love to fish. Don't like walking on ice. Because you know what's underneath the ice? The water. The odds of you coming back from that are not good. And so he said, and I'm picturing this, we're going to walk out on the ice. He said, we're not walking out. We're going to drive out on the ice. I'm like, you're driving out on the ice. I'm not. Not a chance. We ain't driving on no lake. That's not, boats go on lakes. Cars do not. And so the night before we're getting ready to go out, guess what's on the news? The vehicle that fell through the ice. Right, right. I'm like, this isn't happening. I don't have enough faith to be an idiot. And so sure enough, we're driving up there and he said, oh yeah, the lake's over there. And and we're cruising on this road, and I'm like, what are all these little shanties set up on the side of the road here? He's like, well, they're ice fishing. How do you fish on the ground? He said, we're on the lake. 
I said, oh, is it too late to get off the lake? <laughs> and we drove out there. I couldn't believe we drove a car on a lake. And I survived. I lived to tell a story. I also caught no fish. <laughs> but I lived the story. And forever now, because of this experience, I know that one could potentially drive a car on ice. I don't know why you'd want to, but you can do it. It is possible. I'd have never believed it. I, I, there's no way. Because around here, <coughs> our ice doesn't get to be enough that you're driving out on it. But you get up to northern Minnesota, I mean, there are polar bears up there. I mean, it's nothing but ice. It's a completely different world. You see, I now know this because of my experience has lined up with the facts that are around me. But you know the problem is? Is that our experience in the Christian world doesn't line up with Scripture. In fact, the second we have something happen to us that we think God shouldn't allow or shouldn't do, we just, we're like, well, I guess God doesn't do that anymore, does He? He must have changed. We've read this Psalm 103, starting in verse 1. It says, bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless His holy name. This is worship. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all His benefits. He forgives all your iniquity. He heals all your diseases. He redeems your life from destruction. He crowns you with loving kindness and tender mercies. He satisfies your mouth with good things so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. <coughs> when it says forget not, we are to remember. We have this memorial. We remember the goodness of God. He forgives all our iniquities. Not some. And there's a process in which you must go through in order to get that, but that process is not predicated on your ability. It's predicated on your faith in Him, your belief and trust that you are going to put your life in His hand. Take it all. My heart is yours. But we don't do that. We say, take some. You can have a little piece of this. You can't have my time. You can't have my money. You can't have my friends. Whatever. You see, we're no longer devoted to God. We're trying to get God to devote Himself to us. And he did that when he sent his son to the cross. He showed his devotion. Jesus said, there is no greater love than this, and a man lay down his life for his friends. And I no longer call you slaves. I call you friends. We are a friend of God if we, we seek this forgiveness. That we are set free from the destruction of this world, that we no longer have to be a part of it. And so we need to remember this, that we have been forgiven. Because when you remember that you were a sinner lost and dying and going to hell and yet Christ came through and paid that price and now because of your faith in Him and trust in Him that you are forgiven, suddenly it's a lot easier to forgive other people. You're thankful for what God has done and therefore you will pass that mercy and that grace upon them. But then it says that He heals all our diseases. Well, this is, must be where He left off. He got the forgiveness part down, yeah, good for you. But He didn't mean all your diseases. He must have meant some if He chooses to, right? You see, there are three camps. We talked about this last week. We're going to begin to build on this. There are three camps, primarily. It's that God no longer heals. He stopped. He did for a time and it had a purpose, but he no longer does it. Or, you're over here. He still heals if it's his will. And then there's the camp and this is the camp that we would fall on, that it is always God's will to heal. In fact, that it is a part of the atonement. And we will get there. We're not going there today. I'm just going to write atonement so you guys know. See, it's the atonement of which you are saved. And if you are saved, then you should be healed. And if you're not healed, it has nothing to do with the work that Christ did. It probably has something to do with us. We'll address that later. But the two biggies here is that he does not heal at all. And I told you guys this, a conversation I had with the pastor down in Kansas probably a year maybe two years ago, 
where he makes the statement that even if somebody was healed by no work of their own and you couldn't explain it away with a doctor, that doesn't prove that God heals today. I don't know what else you do with it. You hear about the, the story of the little boy that in uh, Minnesota that fell from the third rail of the uh, Mall of America. Did you guys hear about that? Uh, he should have been dead. And yeah, he had a couple of fractures or something like that, but his, I mean, he was fine. He was talking. And these are Christian people that believe in God and trusting God. There's another story of a, <coughs> excuse me, of a, a pastor down in Texas where his daughter fell out of a two-story window. And he went and he picked her up and he said she was dead. There was no life. Because if you've ever dealt with a dead body, you can tell. They're cold and all that. And he just grabbed her and he's waiting on the ambulance. He's praying and he's just like, I, I command life into you. I command life into you and all that. And just keeps praying in the name of Jesus. And all of a sudden she took a breath. What do you do with that? He did not perform CPR. There was no explanation. What do you do with that? Did he make the story up? Maybe. I don't know. I wasn't there. But what do you do with that? So we've either got that he no longer heals or if it's God's will. What do we do with that? What, if it's God's will to heal? How do we ever know if it's God's will? Oh, well, you were healed. It's the same line of thinking that how, if, if you believe that only those, this is called Calvinism, that are born again are people who God had chosen, how do you know that if you are one of the chosen one? Oh, well, you got born again. We call this circular reasoning. It's a big circle. If you got born again, then you were one of the chosen. Well, how do you know if you're one of the chosen? Well, you got born again. Which means that if you didn't, you weren't one of God's elect, one of God's chosen. Now, that's not a biblical thing, but it is a very popular theology out there. And why is that theology out there? Because we're trying to make sense of where God went. We have to explain this. The fact that God no longer heals is a lot easier to deal with because if he doesn't, and he's not moving supernaturally, it makes sense with the world around us because good Christian people die of sickness all the time. There was a Muslim apologist, he was a born-again Christian, got saved out of the work of Ravi Zacharias primarily, who just died of cancer about a year ago or something like that. And all of the people that came from that reform camp and that knew him and loved him were just crushed. And they were all praying, God, if it be your will, will heal this man. Because he, he meant a lot to the body of Christ. He was a good guy. He said the same thing, God, if it's your will for me to be healed, then I trust that you be healed. Is that a prayer of faith? It can't be. What are we believing for? If, would you ever come to God, when we talk about being born again or doing the sinner's prayer or something like that, do we ever come up to God and say, God, if it be your will, would you save me from destruction? We have complete confidence that it is always his will to save. Complete, but yet when it comes to anything else, any of these other benefits, we begin to question. And the reason we question is because we still see sickness in this earth. So what do we do with this, guys? We've got to address it. This is the elephant in the room. And if we're being intellectually honest, we've got issues. Because we do not see what we see in Scripture. Where people are rising up who have never walked before. Blind eyes being opened. Do we see that around here? We don't. I hear about it all the time in foreign countries especially. But why not here? Why not here at home? There's a lot of reasons that we'll, we'll get into, but primarily, guys, I, what I want to start talking about is looking at this, that God no longer heals. This is a belief that's called cessationism, that the moving of God, the, the gifts of the Holy Spirit, have now ceased to operate. And the reason that they have ceased to operate is these were given to the apostles. And the reason they were given to the apostles is to confirm the word of God. Why did they need to know that these people were from God? Because they had no Bible to read. 
So therefore, these signs would follow them around, confirming that these men were from God. They were able to perform supernatural works. It was given to them. And when they died out, and at the completion of the writing of the New Testament, which remember the apostles wrote pretty much all the New Testament, that we no longer needed those today. Now we're going to look at this from very, uh, uh, varying standpoints um, because I, if we see a miracle performed in the name of Jesus past the time of the apostles, would that or would that not prove that they at least have extended for a certain amount of time? It would. Then you could argue, well, it must have been God's will. And we'll get to that point eventually. But we're going to look at it today strictly from a scriptural standpoint. What does the Bible say? So, being completely candid and upfront, I 100% believe in the moving in, of the Holy Spirit today that the gifts are still in operation. And the reason I believe that is not because I have experienced it, which I have, but because the Bible says so. Because it's in Scripture. See, there's a term out there called sola scriptura. I know I'm giving you a bunch of big words today. Sola scriptura, which means by Scripture alone. Only that. And you'll hear people that believe either, either one of those two things over there say the reason we don't believe it is because of sola scriptura. We stick with the word. There is no new revelation. Which is interesting because I believe in the gifts and moving of the Holy Spirit today because of sola scriptura, because the word tells me so. You see, I don't have to see somebody supernaturally healed to know that it is God's will for somebody to be healed. I have seen that. I've seen that several times. People that I have prayed for, for directly. I have seen that with people who have uh, had other people pray for them. I have a friend of mine who ministers, uh, travels all over the world. He was over in Indonesia, had a blind lady come up to him to be prayed for. He doesn't speak the language, didn't have an interpreter. She just had whites in her eyes. She had no pupils. And as he was praying for her, he watched the pupils form in her eyes and she saw. Is he making that story up? It wasn't there. So I can never say with full assurance. But he has no reason to. You know why? He didn't write a book and sell it. So, when we look at these, and we look at these gifts of the Holy Spirit, we're not going to go through all of them, but, but I've got a list here. There's nine of them that are mentioned in Scripture. There's other, some other things that you could lump into this. You have a word of wisdom, word of knowledge, the gift of faith, gift of healings, miracles, prophecy, distinguishing between spirits, we call that discernment of spirits, tongues, and the interpretation of tongues. So, with the word of wisdom, word of knowledge, and prophecy, those are language, you're speaking something out, you can put tongues in that, um, miracles, gifts of healing, gifts of faith, supernatural faith, not just a simple belief, but suddenly there's this supernatural faith, um, the, way I, the only way I know how to describe it is that it's this uncanny confidence that you have in a situation, no doubt in your mind, it, it's, it's a supernatural thing. Tongues and interpretation of tongues. Tongues being a speaking of a language unknown to you and the interpretation thereof is something to interpret it. Those all have rabbit trails that we could go on and we are not going to spend our time looking at this. We are focused primarily on the gifts of healing. Because we need to address this. We need to know what's going on. We need to know what the Bible says. And so when it comes to these people that say there is no supernatural manifestation of the Holy Spirit today like you see in Scripture because it is ended, they come from four verses as their proof text primarily. 1 Corinthians 13, verses 8 through 10. I'm going to list these off here. Hebrews 2 and 4, Ephesians 2 and 2.20, or 2, excuse me, 2.20, and Revelation 22.18. Now, and the one that you have up there, 
we're going to go through this today, and we'll explain it as we go a little bit, but we'll get into it a little more in depth next week, is that they teach that the miraculous gifts have passed away with the completion of the New Testament. In other words, once the canon of Scripture was completed, that they no longer needed these. So let's read this. You tell me, after you read this and you hear this read, which part of that shows this, this belief. Love never fails. But where there are, whether there are prophecies, they will fail. And whether there are tongues, they will cease. Whether there is knowledge, it will vanish away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when that which is perfect has come, that, then that which is in part will be done away. When I was a child, I spoke as a child. I understood as a child. I thought as a child. But when I became a man, I put away childish things. For now we see in a mirror dimly and then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know just as I also am known. And now abide faith, hope, love, these three, but the greatest of these is love. Did you guys catch that part where it said that uh, as soon as this new, this new Testament's all written, that they're going to be done away with the gifts of the Spirit? Did you guys catch that? It's kind of like when we read our Constitution, you have the separation of church and state. Do you notice those three words are nowhere in there? Separation, church, or state. That's because they've been added. There's been a belief that's put in there, and it's, it's unfounded. But you notice it, has, it doesn't say anything. You see, they get it on this part, which is that which is perfect has come. So what do we do? How do we respond to this? It says that tongues and prophecy will cease. It also says that knowledge will cease. Hopefully, that's none, no time soon, although you could begin to question whether knowledge has stopped altogether in the world that we live in. It hangs on this word perfection, because they say this perfection refers to the completion of the canon of Scripture. And they hold that the first century church needed these supernatural gifts and these revelatory gifts because the Bible wasn't complete. So God spoke through people then, but now that we have the Scripture that God doesn't speak through anybody anymore there is no such thing as a prophet there is no such thing as the word of wisdom word of knowledge prophecy any of that tongues and interpretation no longer needed because we have the scriptures so what is a non-cessationist belief what is somebody who believes in the gifts we don't think that the perfect has anything to do with scripture do you think that as paul is writing this down he's thinking boy i need to hurry up and finish this so we can get this bible done get it into the hands of the people you think that's what he thinks is going on He's writing things down as he's inspired these letters, but do you think they thought they were forming some new book? Of course not. See, that which is perfect has come. The perfection refers to whom? You see, Jesus is going to return, and he's going to make all things new. This is the perfection. These gifts are intended for the present age as a confirming of, this, of the word that goes out. So which is right, which is wrong? Well, it's actually kind of simple because you notice that it says here that uh, in verse 12, for now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Face to face with whom? With the Messiah. You see, the context here. And 1 Corinthians 12 through 14 is dealing with these gifts because the Corinthian church was kind of on a, a wild tangent. They were getting things carried away. You really need to read that and read it very slowly because you'll miss some of the nuances. But, but they're getting things carried away. 12 starts to address the gifts. Then you got 13, which is called the love chapter. And then you get 14 specifically dealing with the gifts in the operation of the assembly, which we call church. And so here, dealing with it face to face can only mean one thing. 
Well, let's go to Scripture and see what face-to-face possibly means. In Revelation 22, 4, it says, They shall see his face, and his name shall be on their foreheads. This is the returning of the Messiah, right? 1 John 3, 2, Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be, but we know that when he is revealed, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. What are we talking about? The returning of Christ. What is that face-to-face dealing with? Not the completion of Scripture. That doesn't make any sense, does it? It can't. Simply using the English language, you don't even have to go through and figure out what the Greek says, do you? Pretty simple. But yet, we've got this whole doctrine of belief and this entire theology that entire denominations are built upon this idea simply from this verse. Paul says that I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. The Scripture help us to know many things, certainly. But he could not know God fully because we're not face-to-face. We know about God. We know a lot about God. We have a relationship with God. But think about when he's standing here, nothing could be better than when Jesus was with the apostles. Right? They knew more about him than anybody else. And there's a reason that they're going to be seated in heaven and the 12 thrones and all that other stuff. But they knew him face-to-face. We never did. Why do you think Jesus said to Thomas, he said, listen, it's good that you've seen but better is for him who is not seen and yet believes. Because that's faith. If I told you I had a $100 bill in my pocket, and you didn't believe me, and I pulled it out to you, it's no longer faith, right? We have to come to Christ in faith. We come to God in faith. We were talking about this this morning a little bit, that we come to him in faith. There's a guy that you may, uh, may or may not know, he, uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones. He was a Welsh Protestant man. man blah. He was a minister, thank you, and uh, back in the early 1900s and whatnot, but he was very influential into the British reform movement, and the reform movement is big on this cessationist idea, so he was very influential, but he kind of went the other direction with this. Look at what he says here. Do you see what that involves? It means that you and I, who have the scriptures open before us, know much more than the Apostle Paul of God's truth. If that argument is correct, it means that we are altogether superior to the early church and even to the apostle himself, including the apostle Paul. The then is the glory everlasting. It is only then that I shall know, even as also I am known, for then I shall see him as he is. You see, the Corinthian church, whom this was written to, this letter, the concept of a closed canon would have never occurred to them. The idea that we're getting the Bible written, and as soon as it's all done, guys, these gifts are going away. with They would have never come up with that idea. A lot of these scholars, and there's all sorts of literature written about this, are trying to deal with this. And the reason they're dealing with this is the abuse of these gifts. There's so much done in the name of God that has nothing to do with God. So many people trying to get money. That's really what it comes down to. You guys remember when I showed you some of those letters that, that came in? I filled out the thing online, and we got the letters saying, you know, you got to dip your finger in the water seven times, rub it on your forehead, put it by your bedstand, send in an offering, and then it'll be blessed and all of that. I'm still getting those letters, and they've upped their ante. I get recorded phone calls and text messages from them now. Yeah. I mean, we're doubling down here. You see, all of this is trying to deal with the world that we have around us. So, here's another quote from him. Let me begin to answer by giving you just one thought. The scriptures never anywhere say that these things were only temporary, never. There is no such statement anywhere. 
So you see the difficulties men land themselves in when they dislike something and cannot fully understand it and try to explain it away. All things must be judged in the light of Scripture, and we must not twist them to suit our theory or argument. You notice the term that I use when I said there are four proof texts that they use to try to make this happen. What I mean by that is, is I already have this idea. Let me go find a few scriptures that back this up. How should we read scripture? We get an idea from scripture. Let's see if my interpretation lines up with the rest of scripture. You notice how I went to two other verses to show, and I will know him fully. We will see him as he is. We will see him face to face. That's called allowing scripture to interpret scripture. It's that I'm not putting my spin on it. What does the Bible say about it? And that is being diligent to what Scripture says. You see, the reason this is going on is because they don't like what they see. Because the moving of the Holy Spirit does not fit their theology. And let's face it, it can get a little weird. And as I share with you guys some of the stories of these past revivals, you're going to hear some stuff that's going to sound kind of weird. The problem with it is if it's not of God, there are a lot of people that were saved out of it. And there were a lot of, of trends that happened in the early centuries up into the later revivals that have happened in our own lifetime. We've got to deal with that. So that's one of the things. You guys see how that works? You see how they're taking scripture and they're saying, yep, this is done away with. He no longer heals. He no longer gives prophecy because that would be adding to scripture. He no longer does any of this stuff. The other thing that they say is that the apostles were the only ones that were given the ability to do these things. Gifts and operate in these gifts. Now, this one is easier to deal with. Those who heard from Jesus were the apostles. You remember in Acts chapter 1, Judas is gone. And then Peter stands up, listen, we need to find a 12th. And he goes to two different passages in Psalm to come up with this idea. And they cast lots and they come up with Matthias. And the, the reason that it was Matthias, it was him and another, is they wanted somebody who had been with Jesus from the time of his baptism to the time of his death. Those were the prerequisite. So there was only a handful of people that would, would qualify. And so these people were entrusted with the message of God. Jesus said, I want you to go into all the world and preach the gospel. They knew what it was. And by doing that, these signs and wonders would follow them around, confirming that the word that they sang was from God. And we see in Acts chapter 5, verse 12, you see some stuff that's going on. And it says, and through the hands of the apostles, many signs and wonders were done among the people. And they were all with one accord in Solomon's porch, which is in the temple. So here you have it. Who did the signs and wonders? It was the apostle. Who told that man at the beautiful gate, I don't have any silver or gold, but what I have I give to you in the name of Jesus, stand up and walk. It was Peter. Whose shadow was falling on people? Peter's. It was always the apostles. Always. And then we see in Hebrews 2, this is another passage they use, verse 1. It says, Therefore, we must give the more earnest heed to the things we have heard, lest we drift away. For if the word spoken through angels proved steadfast, and every transgression and disobedience received a just reward, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation, which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord, and was confirmed to us by those who heard him, who was us, those who heard Jesus speak, God also bearing witness with both signs and wonders with various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit according to his own will. Whose will? God's. To whom? Those who heard. It's got to be the apostles. Right? 
The apostolic gifts, that's what we call them. The apostolic gifts, the ability to heal, to lay hands on the sick. Jesus did it. He gave the ability to the apostles. The apostles were filled with the Holy Spirit, and they were the ones that spread the message, right? That is right. But was there anybody else? We've got to respond to that. If the sign gifts were given to confirm apostolic authority, which is what they will claim, then we have to understand why non-apostles did this. And to, do, to start with this, we've got to start in Mark chapter 16. This is the end of the chapter. Now, this is called the long ending of Mark 16 because some manuscripts do not have this portion in there. And some will argue that this was added later and should not be in the Bible if that is true. Well, then we have a problem because whose job is it to keep his word together? It is God, not yours, not mine. It wasn't some council in the 300s that was supposed to do it. It was God himself. So he either kept his word together or he let somebody sneak this in. That's the question. Mark chapter 16, verse 15. And he said to them, who is them? The apostles. Go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. Okay. This is a commandment that we give all the time, right? We're to go into all the world to preach the gospel every creature now watch what he says verse 16 he who believes and is baptized will be saved but he who does not believe will be condemned and these signs will follow those who believe in my name they will cast out demons they will speak with new tongues they will take up serpents and if they drink anything deadly it will by no means hurt them they will lay hands on the sick and they will recover so then after the lord has spoken to them he was received up into heaven and sat down at the right hand of god and they went out and they preached every word the lord working with them and confirming the word through accompanying signs Amen. So be it. Now, what do we see here? God commissioning the apostles, going to all the world. And you see at the end of this that the Lord was going with them, confirming the word with signs following. Why was he doing that? Because we don't have the New Testament. We don't have any scripture. We can't hand them a Bible tract. There was no such thing. I was talking to the boys about the $20 bills. You guys remember the $20 bills? That you would fold in half, it looked like cash, you'd throw it on the ground, you still got some? You know, they really like to see some, they were, they were, they, if you could, they, they would appreciate it. I don't know if they still make them or not. And, uh, you know, you, people would uh, drop these things, and what happens if you're walking along and you see a $20 bill? You don't walk by it, you pick it up. And you quickly look around, like, I don't see anybody this could belong to, it is now mine. Right? You guys want to hear a funny story about one of those? So when I was in high school, I was on a mission, and I was dropping these bad boys anywhere I could. I'd walk through gas stations and drop them. I'd drop them in the street, the movie theater, you name it, I dropped it. And one day, I was in gym class and in the locker room, and I dropped one on the floor right next to our heavyweight wrestler. To be a heavyweight wrestler, you have to weigh 285 pounds or less, and he cut weight to get there, okay? I dropped that $20 track, because what happens when you open it says, surprise, you won't be if you make Jesus the Lord of your life. Right? Folded it in half, threw it down there. I walked around the court. I watched him do one of these. He stuck his foot out on it and slid it right to him, as any 285-pound man would, as graceful as you can imagine. And when nobody's looking, he bent over, he picked it up, and put it in his pocket. I was like, okay, good, maybe he'll read it. Well, that wasn't the end of the story, because the next day he came into the gym room, the locker room, and he was madder than a hornet. And the reason he was madder than a hornet because he went down to the local uh, Mexican restaurant and ordered $20 worth of food. And guess what's the only thing he had to pay with? So he orders the food. They prepare the food. He pulls out his money. He opens it up to pay them. He's like, surprised. You won't be if you make Jesus the Lord of your life. I don't know if he eventually gave his life to Christ. I know he didn't that day. 
And I was cowering in the corner, laughing a little bit and uh, a little afraid because he's 285 pounds because he might eat me next. So he had to go home and borrow money from his parents. It was, it was an unforgettable story. So what does that have to do with anything? Nothing. I just like that story. So anyway, anyway, when we look at this, the confirming of the word through signs following was to whom? Here it says it's the apostles. But did it happen with anybody else? Well, we have to break this down a little bit. In Mark 16, verse 15, can you put that back up there for me? You notice it says, go into all the world, I don't know if you guys can see through this, and preach the gospel to every creature. It says, he who believes and is baptized will be saved. Who believes here? Is that the apostles? It's whomever is receiving the word, right? Then look what it says. He does not believe will be condemned. Verse 17, these signs will follow those who believe. So who is the belief? It's not believing in the signs, it's the believing in the Messiah. So this means that all these signs, at a minimum, are for everybody who hears the message and believes it or puts their faith in it. You guys see what I'm saying? Because if it wasn't, then you could make the argument that, yes, it was for the apostles because it was given directly to them. But in this case, it goes beyond that. So we got to look at Scripture, right? Acts chapter 6, verse 1. It said, now in those days, when the number of the disciples was multiplying, there arose a complaint against the Hebrews by the Hellenists because their widows were neglected in the daily distribution. Now, who were the Hellenists? They were Greek-believing Jews, all right? They, they spoke Greek. They had a lot of the Greek culture in there, which was contrary to the Jewish culture, uh, but that's just where they, 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 they were. And so the number of the disciples is multiplying because the church is being persecuted. The apostles are getting out there, and those who are uh, hearing the message are getting out there. Then the twelve summoned the multitude of the disciples and said, It is not desirable that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. Therefore, brethren, seek out from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business. But we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the word. Now, what's going on here? The apostles can't just deal with all the little nuances because their focus and calling by God is to preach the gospel and a devotion to the prayer and a devotion to the word. So we need some help, guys. We need some people that can go and take care of this. We can't deal with the serving of the tables and all this other stuff. We need some help with the day-to-day. That way we can be focused on the spiritual stuff, which ultimately matters, and that is their calling. We see church structures that are set up this way as well. So do they say, just go bring us seven guys? I don't care who it is. No, there was criteria. They have to be men of good reputation. They have to be full of the Holy Spirit, and they have to be full of wisdom. Those might be a little hard to find today because we're dealing with men, right? Wisdom? I don't know. Whom we may appoint over the business. We call these today, the label we give them are deacons. You'll hear that used in church. This is the idea. They deal with the financial side of stuff often. But we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And the saying pleased the whole multitude, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith in the Holy Spirit, Philip, Procurus, Nicanor, Tim, T- uh, Timon, Timon Pumbaa, maybe, I don't know, Parmenas, and Nicholas. Thank you, Katie. I appreciate that. You're, you're a sweetheart. Who was a proselyte from Antioch, whom they set before the apostles. And when they had prayed, they laid hands on them. They commissioned them. They, they put that on them. Then the word of God spread. Why did the word of God spread? Because now suddenly the apostles weren't dealing with all the day-to-day stuff. They had some help. And the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests were obedient to the faith. And Stephen, full of faith and power, did great wonders and signs among the people. Is he an apostle? 
Does it say that he was there at the time that Jesus was baptized in the time of his death? Couldn't be an apostle then. That was the definition of an apostle at that point, right? It says that he was full of faith and power, and he did great wonders and signs among the people. Then how are these the apostolic gifts? Because Stephen was one who believed, and he did a great many signs and wonders. What did he do exactly? I don't know. Luke didn't write it down. That's who wrote Acts, because that wasn't his focus. You see, that's the thing is if you look at the context of the book of Acts, Luke is writing down what happened. He is not giving a a, a play-by-play thing of how you must do everything. He's writing down what transpired, and from that, we build ideas of how we should operate. And here you've got a man that was chosen by God, ultimately, who was full of faith and power. How did he get that power? From the Holy Spirit. And he did great wonders and signs among the people. Well, let's look at Acts chapter 8, verse 1. Now Saul was consenting to his death. Who are we talking about here? It was Stephen. Stephen dies. At, uh, at Saul, later to be called Paul. At the time of great persecution rose against the church, which is at Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the region of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. They stuck around. Everybody else bailed. And devout men carried Stephen to his burial and made a lamentation over him. As for Saul, he made havoc of the church entering every house and dragging off men and women, committing them to prison. Therefore, those who were scattered went everywhere preaching the word. Now hold on a second. Who did Jesus commission to go into all the world and preach the gospel? The apostles. Here it says that the apostles stayed in Jerusalem, but everybody else scattered. And those who were scattered went everywhere preaching the word. Maybe that message is for everybody. And if that message is for everybody... What about the him who believes these signs will follow? Well, let's go on. Then Philip went down to the city of Samaria, and he preached Christ to them. And the multitudes with one accord heeded those things spoken by Philip, hearing and seeing the miracles which he did. For unclean spirits crying with a loud voice came out of many who were possessed, and many who were paralyzed and lame were healed, and there was great joy in that city. Yeah, I'd think so. What did he do? He preached the word, and the signs follow. Who was Philip? Not an apostle, right? He was a nothing. Yeah, he was one of the deacons or whatever you want to call him. But here's a man who believed, and it said all who were scattered. There were a lot of people. Remember, 3,000 people came to the Lord in Acts chapter 2 as a result of Peter's sermon. There was a lot of people around Jerusalem at that point that were coming to faith, and because of the persecution headed by Paul, they all fled. So was it just the apostles? Are these apostolic gifts? No, they weren't, because Philip was one who believed. So that doesn't work, does it? Can't be. That can't be what it is. So then they'll say things like this, that the foundation was laid by the apostles, and therefore we no longer need the sign gifts. The apostles laid everything down. We don't need these anymore. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 19. It says, Now therefore... You are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom the whole building being fitted together grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. Now there are a lot of assumptions that one has to come to the conclusion that, you know, it was just the apostles and all of that. But none of it is supported by Scripture. 
The apostles and the prophets, the idea that they had a temporary purpose and there was no other need for that is completely unbiblical, that they somehow were just temporary and they've been done away with. Because it's got to be assumed that the gifts function with them and no one else. And both of these arguments lack any sort of evidence and any sort of biblical support. Because what is going on here? When it says in verse 19 that you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, what is it talking about? You have to remember, you had Israel and everybody else. And Israel was the one with the covenant with God, and everybody else was not. And in order to be in fellowship and covenant with God, you had to forsake your foundation, your past, and all of that, and become what they called a proselyte Jew. And you were still considered a stranger. The Hebrew word is ger, G-I-R, an alien is how it's used in, in, in other translations. But you were one with them, and you had that fellowship with God, not by birth, but by decision. But now he's saying you're no longer strangers and foreigners, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Who is he talking about? He's talking about the nation of Israel, this covenant that he made with Judah and with Israel. Not like the covenant beforehand where he led his, uh, the members through the, the desert, but one where you no longer have to teach your neighbor. All of this, the new covenant, Jeremiah 31, it's been built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. What are we talking about here? The apostles are the twelve. Who are the prophets? Most of the Old Testament. The foundation laid is the very word of God and the people that God has chosen. With Jesus being the chief cornerstone. If you've ever built anything, that cornerstone is crucial. It's got to be square. It's got to be perfect. Jesus is the cornerstone. Everything else is built upon that. This wasn't built on them. It was built on on Jesus. Revelation 22 verse 18, for I testify to everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. If anyone adds to these things, God will add to him the plagues that are written in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of this book of this prophecy, God shall take away his part from the book of life, from the holy city, and from things which are written in this book. You see what it just said here? Anybody who attempts to prophesy in any way and say that they heard from God, he will, and you're adding to the Bible. And therefore, if you're adding to the Bible, if you're adding to this book, then the plagues will be upon you. Isn't that what it just said? What's the book? The book of Revelation. It has nothing to do with you hearing from the Lord, you acting in prophecy, you having a word of wisdom or a word of knowledge. It has nothing to do with that. It is specifically talking about the book of Revelation. It's an end-time book talking about the things that will come. John being on the island of Patmos, getting this vision from God, God showing him things. And he says that if you add to this, if you try to twist this at all, you're going to deal with all the stuff that is in it. Who is he writing that to? The seven churches. Don't twist these words. These are from God. It's not talking about your ability to hear from God. The idea that God no longer heals from a biblical standpoint, in other words, not just heals, but moves in any way of the nine gifts of the Holy Spirit is completely and utterly unsupported from Scripture. If you're going to be sola scriptura, where we allow the Word of God to be our guide and we let Scripture to interpret Scripture, then you have to come to the conclusion at a minimum that those gifts in operation are still available today. They have never been done away with because there is no passage in Scripture that makes it say so. I've showed you guys the verses that they've used. Is there anybody here with their doctorate in theology, masters of divination, uh, any of that kind of stuff? 
Masters in Divinity. No, nobody here. Yeah, me neither. But people with those degrees came to that conclusion. We say people with uh, seminary degrees, they have degrees but no temperature. They, guys, we ha- what the reason this has happened is what Martin Lloyd-Jones has done is because of experience. They prayed for somebody and they weren't healed, therefore God doesn't heal today. They prayed for somebody and weren't healed, therefore God may heal today, but it wasn't his will. And they do it out of abuses that have happened in the church, and there has been many. We talk about years ago when the Catholic Church was selling indulgences in order to get the forgiveness of sin and getting you into heaven, which was wrong. We do the same thing today. We just call them miracles. You send me an offering, I'll prophesy for you. You send me an offering, I'll get you healed. You send me an offering, whatever. We, we, we're selling those items. And because of that, we've allowed our experience to dictate our theology. Let's be sola scriptura. Let's allow the word of God to be our guide. You guys with me? We've got to stick to the word, no matter what. 